chapter 34 is what we're up to this week, and we're going to read to you through the verse 7 verses, and I'm hoping that we'll get chapter 34 finished next week before Christmas. So let's, um, let's read through the first seven verses. Draw near, O nations, to hear. Give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord, for Yahweh, is enraged against all the nations and furious against their host. And he has devoted them to destruction and has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their host shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Yahweh has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats and the fat of the kidneys of rams. For Yahweh has a sacrifice in Bozrah, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we study your scriptures tonight, Lord, you would help us to understand, you would help us to to, um, to see you more clearly, to see your might, to see your anger, to see your judgment, to see your glory. And seeing you, Lord, we pray that we might be transformed, that you might be glorified through us. Amen. Amen. Okay, so for those who weren't here, at the end of chapter 33... We, we um, in the context more broadly, from chapter 28 and onwards, we've been dealing with the, um, the contemporary problem with Israel, which is that they are seeking to make a covenant with another nation rather than trusting God, in this case, the Egyptians. And initially, there is the description of uh, the covenant that was made with the Assyrians beforehand, and that was a mistake from the past. And then he's gone on to talk about a similar covenant that is going to be made um, with foreign nations for the sake of security, um, rather than trusting in Yahweh in a future time. And specifically, the covenant that is going to mark the beginning of what in the Old Testament, and the New as well, uh, actually, is called the Day of the Lord, and which in the book of Revelation is typically referred to as tribulation. That this period of time is going to be triggered, not by the rapture of the church, as some believe, and that will happen perhaps at the same time, perhaps beforehand, and if so, beforehand, we have no idea how much beforehand, but nonetheless, um, there is going to to be uh, the, the triggering of the day of the Lord is going to be, uh, according to Daniel 9, the signing of this covenant between the ruler of uh, the uh, latter form of the Roman Empire, the one that we call the Antichrist, a covenant signed between him and between the nation of Israel. 
And really so much of these recent chapters of Isaiah have again been dealing with the end, have been dealing with the judgment of Israel, the judgment of the earth, and then ultimately the judgment of the nations and the judgment of those who stand against Israel and the establishing of the kingdom. Last time, at the end of chapter 33, we were talking about the kingdom and the king and him ruling in righteousness and justice. And we ended with that glorious verse in verse 24, that no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. And this issue that has been really the central theme of Isaiah from chapter 6, that how does one stand in the presence of God unless God redeems them? unless they are made holy, unless their sin is dealt with. And with uh, Isaiah in that uh, scene in the, before the throne of God, he is an unclean man with unclean lips and un- of an unclean people, and he is cleansed by the coal from the altar. What that means practically is still to come. But this theme is continuing on. And certainly, when God is reigning and ruling on the earth in the kingdom, the people will be able to dwell with him, but only because he's dealt with their iniquity. He's dealt with their sin. So when we come to chapter 34, the focus, which again has been on these end time events, we kind of got led by Isaiah into dealing with what's going to happen with Israel in the kingdom. And now he shifts his focus in chapter 34 back to the nations, back to the Gentiles. Draw near, O nations, to to hear, and give attention, O peoples. What is interesting to me is that the nations have a duty to listen to what God says will be their ultimate fate, even now. I think sometimes we get a bit too, you know, hellfire and brimstone in our preaching, and we, there are those who've shied away from the grace of God, but I think there's others who shy away from the judgment of God. This is a very key doctrine in the Bible, that people should know that God's judgment is upon them. And so he calls them to draw near. Your regulars will know, uh, notice the Hebrew uh, um, poetic parallelism. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and then give attention, O peoples. So the people parallels the nations, giving attention parallels drawing near to hear. The nations are the nations other than Israel, what we would call Gentiles, and the word peoples is often used to describe them as well. And then the call goes out to the earth. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. The word here for earth is the inhabited earth as opposed to the globe. Um, That the idea is that everybody in the world, all the nations filling the whole earth, everybody in the earth needs to hear this. This is what we might call a universal call. It is a universal call. It is for everybody to hear and everybody to know that the judgment of God is coming. And so there is this call and this call to the nations to come near. This gathering of the nations is spoken about in other passages. I'm going to just turn to a few of them. Should we do them chronologically? The first one, and again, what I do, I'm going to do a bit of flicking around today. You're probably just best to listen because I'm going to do it quite quickly. But those of you who've been coming in the last few months will be familiar with Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? 
What do we have there? Nations, peoples. Same parallel as we have here. Why do the nations rage, the people's plot and gain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed one. And so we have this, this uh, uh, gathering of the nations against God and against his people. It's uh, something that was spoken of beforehand. Then after Isaiah, it's something that is expanded upon. If I turn very quickly to the book of hoping I can remember the order of my minor prophets. Um, Joel chapter 3, Joel chapter 3, verses 9 to 11, proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near. Again, he's talking about the nations drawing near for war. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Yahweh. So there is the gathering of the nations specifically for war. This is something we knew the nations were going to come against God. Psalm 2, nations, peoples, reiterated here. That's an allusion back. Joel then builds on Isaiah and he says that these nations will be gathered specifically, that the God is saying, you are going to do this, you're going to come for war. And finally, we see the the outworking of all this in Revelation chapter 16, where, um, maybe it's Revelation 6, maybe I got that written down wrong, hold on one second. Uh, yes, it's Revelation 6. He opened the sixth seal and I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. Sun became black as sackcloth. The moon um, became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone, slaves and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and for the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? And so there is um, this going on. And also in Revelation 16, um, that as well, in verse... Uh, 14, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blesses the one who stays awake, keeps his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. I think people in secular circles, certainly those who watch horror movies, are familiar with Armageddon, the end time battle. Really, there's not a single battle. The battle of Armageddon is actually inaccurate. It's more the campaign of Armageddon. But what happens is that the nations are gathered. According to Revelation 16, the gathering of the nation is done by demons. Specifically, the the Antichrist, the false prophet, and what have you. But there's this gathering together of the nations for battle. But what Joel tells us is that God's behind it. Even the, the demons can only do what God allows them to do. Just as they sought to kill the Messiah, 
That was also God's will as well. That's why they were allowed to do it. It's a similar kind of concept. And so what we have here in, our, in Isaiah is the gathering of the nations for the final battle, for the final campaign, the final war. And that's what's being spoken of here in this passage. Now the reason for it is given in verse 2 and following. For Yahweh is enraged against all the nations and furious against their host. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. So Yahweh is angry. He's furious. And he's furious with the nations. Now, again, we've seen this again and again and again in Isaiah. God raises up the nations to act. Sometimes even he refers to them as his servants because they are going to act as a means of disciplining and bringing judgment to Israel. And yet once they've done that and harmed Israel, God says, you harmed Israel. Now you've made me angry. Now I'm going to judge you. And we look at that and we say, how can that be? But the Bible sees no paradox. The people do according to their choice and according to their will. And God is sovereignly in charge of the whole thing. He allows them of their own accord to rise up because he is in charge. And he uses them to judge Israel. But once they've judged Israel, then God is going to judge them. And he is enraged against the nations for a multitude of reasons. In the context of Isaiah, it's more immediately to do with their treatment of Israel. We've seen that again and again. In the context of Psalm 2, which has already been alluded to, nations, peoples, um, it is because they want to burst the bonds of God. They're angry with God and his ways, and they want to do things their way. Um, so there's all of that going on. In fact, with Psalm 2, just to say, there are many who think that Psalm 2 refers to the campaign of Armageddon. There's others who think that Psalm 2 refers to the final battle after the kingdom, when the devil is loosed after a thousand years, and there is one final battle then. I tend to err on the side of the latter, but so many people think it's this that, um, that you know, is perfectly possible as well. But um, he is angry, Um, against them, and he is furious against their host. Now, we've seen this in Isaiah again and again and again and again and again. Some of you are getting quite familiar with this now. The idea that behind the nations are heavenly hosts. That God, basically, at the Tower of Babel, said, okay, we'll separate you into nations, and you sons of God, you can have those nations, Deuteronomy 32, And I will start again, next chapter of Genesis, with my own nation, Israel. And so there is the nation, the nation of God, Israel, and there's all the other nations. And all the other nations, though they vary in uh, historically and now today in the nature of government, the way the government is run, that they were handed over to angelic beings. Predominantly, the term is used of fallen ones. But we're not sure entirely. But there are hosts behind the nations. When Daniel is praying and fasting about the the return of Israel, they're currently under the authority of the Medo-Persian Empire. So Gabriel comes to speak to Daniel and bring revelation, and he says, I came as soon as you started praying and fasting, but I was held up by the prince of Persia. The demonic being that had authority over that particular empire. And Michael was able to overcome him. And so equally, 
the Jews were able to overcome their restrictions from the Medo-Persian Empire, that them being overseen. Now, I, I, I re-emphasize all of this because we have to understand that we today, we look at a country and we say, oh, there's just that country and there's this leader and they just do this stuff. And we think of it purely in human terms. That is just not biblical. And I'm not just talking Old Testament. Paul talks about how our battle is against principalities and powers. And we're all familiar with that. We, but we think it means, oh, it's just the devil attacking us individually and demons kind of doing their work individually. And we seem to have let go of this, this kind of national way of operating, which is constantly there in the Old Testament. But the very, the very words that Paul uses, principalities and powers, what does principality mean? We use the word principality today to speak of countries, ruling entities. And so there's nothing to suggest that this system has ceased. So what is happening here is that God is angry with the nations and he's angry with those spiritual beings who have ruled and reigned and guided and operated these various nations. That is a biblical worldview, folks, and one that we would do well to take to heart. So he's furious against their host, and he has therefore devoted them to destruction. Now this word for them being devoted to destruction is the Hebrew word um, haram, and it is a specific word that is a curse. And it is something that is cursed to the extent that it is now, that is it, it's going to be destroyed, it is devoted to that. It's a word that's used of something that you know, might be devoted to God. But the idea is it's devoted for the purpose of being burnt up or destroyed. It's a particular type of curse, a curse where something is, is devoted so there's links to the sacrificial system for complete destruction. A good example biblically is Jericho. The city of Jericho was, was given the curse of Haram, devoted to destruction. And that's what's happening here. That there is this Haram curse, that the, God has devoted them to the nations, that is, to destruction, and they have been given over for slaughter. And the outworking of that is seen in verse 3. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. There will be massive slaughter of the armies of the nations, and as they are killed, their bodies will just be left, and they will sit there in the heat, and they will rot, and they will smell. That's what's going on there. And the mountains will flow with their blood. According to Revelation 14, there will be blood flowing in the wilderness in the mountains for a distance, and of course these distances are approximate because we deal with biblical terminology like stadia, and we don't quite know precisely what they are, but a distance of almost 200 miles at a height of a horse's bridle. Don't know how big the horse is, but that's pretty tall, right? If you ever stood next to a horse, you've got a vague idea, right? So... A lot of blood flowing for a distance of almost 200 miles. That is a lot of dead people. To what degree is this supernatural? To what degree is it just literal blood? We have an area, um, by the way, in, in, in that kind of area where this is happening, the gathering is happening. We're talking about the, uh, the wilderness of Israel. These are places that have these, um, 
are they wadis, where you have these kind of stream riverbeds that have been forged for years and years. And it's just dry, completely dry, completely dry. And then suddenly there's rainfall and you get these flash floods. And, um, and that's what's being spoken of. There will be a flash flood of blood. That's how significant the slaughter will be. How does such a slaughter happen? We'll talk about that at the end. But that is a lot of people dying in a very short space of time. Verse 4. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Now here we have something that's a little bit unclear. But the problem being is that the hosts of heaven can mean two different things, biblically. The hosts of heaven can firstly mean angelic beings. And secondly, the hosts of heaven can mean the sun, the moon, the stars, and the sky. So what's going on here? The hosts of heaven shall rot away. That's a parallel with the destruction of the bodies that are rotting away and giving a stench in verse 3. Do you see that? The human bodies rot away and the hosts of heaven will rot away. In verse uh, 2, God is furious against the nations and furious against the host. For those who've done a whole bunch of psalms with me, you'll know the parallels between human leaders and heavenly leaders paralleled constantly in the psalms. So I'm, I'm very, very confident, with almost complete certainty, that the host there is referring to demonic beings. So you've got the host of being demonic beings there. So the host of heaven, it seems to be another parallel with um, the humans and the demons in the sense of the humans rot and the demons rot as well. So both are being slaughtered and both are being destroyed. Now obviously the demons aren't going to be slaughtered like humans are slaughtered. We don't fully understand that realm, that dimension, how things work. We don't, you know... Will they have blood? Will they be down? There's, there's some answers to that, but we'll maybe come to those later. But the reality is, is that, the, that they shall rot away as well. There's several passages that talk at this time about the host of heaven and Satan being cast down. Now, I think, was it even last week that we dealt with this? Where we talked about how in the midpoint of the tribulation, halfway through the day of the Lord, that, that is the point when, when the, the, the demons are cast down from the earth. They're cast down. And that may well be a reference here in that they, that they are now on the earth. The demons are now on the earth. Now, if that is the case, if that is the case, and I have to completely admit I'm hypothesizing here, okay? <laughs> It'll be very, very clear when it happens. All we can do is work with the text that we have. But we know in Genesis 6 that the sons of God demonic beings, came down to earth and they lay with the daughters of men. So what we have there is we have um, demonic beings, we have demonic beings in, in Genesis 6 who come from the spiritual realm to the human realm, to earth, and in doing so have physical form. Physical form to the extent that they can procreate with human women. Now, 
Do demons, when they come to the earth, angelic beings, when they come to the earth, do they bleed? Quite possible. If they can procreate, why can't they bleed? If they can eat, why can't they bleed? So maybe they will be making a huge contribution to blood as well. Maybe the hosts of heaven will come down. The skies rolling up like a scroll is clearly playing with the imagery of the host of heaven. And when you look at this purely in Isaiah, it could simply be talking about the emptying of the heavenly host, which he's referenced already. It could be talking about dramatic changes in the sky, which he's spoken of already. Or it could be simply talking about both and making the connection between the two. What we will see in the heavenly realm, in the sky, in the night, with the stars and the sun and the moon, what we're going to see is going to be representative of the destruction of the demonic realm. That may well be the case. And so um, there, is, there is stuff going on there that, quite honestly, I'm not fully, completely, 100% sure of. But again, just to reiterate what we read earlier in Revelation... Um, that they're going to assemble at Armageddon. I think it was in chapter six, the part I read in chapter 6, that, um, yeah, with the sixth seal, great black earthquake, sun became black as sackcloth, the moon became blood, the stars of the sky fell to earth. And again, we see a parallel there. When the word star, are we going to see literal stars fall to the earth? Are we going to see the sun, which is, relatively speaking, a very small star, hit the earth? Clearly not. When stars are used symbolically, they refer to, to angels, angelic beings. Throughout scripture, we see that. Going back to Joseph's dream in the book of Genesis. So when the stars fall to the earth, that's when we're seeing the falling of, of the demons to the earth. But again, you see that connection between what, you, what is seen in the heavenlies, what's seen physically in the sky, and what's going on in the spiritual realm. And I think that that, Revelation 6, is based on that same connection that we see in the Old Testament, such as here in Isaiah 34. So, um, in fact, we had a reference, I think, to the rolling of a scroll as there as well. So, um, and we did have a, did we have a reference? Oh, sorry, I've just lost my place. But I think we had a reference to fig trees as well there as, as well. So, um, yes. As the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Revelation 6 and verse 13. And again, it's no coincidence that we have fig tree and leaves falling from it here in Isaiah 34 and verse 4. There's that connection being made. There's that allusion to the passage. Both, although this is later chronologically, this is at the end of the tribulation, and I think Revelation 6 is speaking of earlier on in the tribulation, what's, what's, the reason it's being alluded to is that the same thing is going on. The parallels between what is seen in the sky and what is happening in the spiritual realm. So that's the connection that's being made. So all that to say, when we come to the end of verse 4, and we have the hosts of heaven um, being destroyed, rotting away, their hosts falling down, we have the emptying of heaven, and we have signs in the skies that seem to support and back up what's going on in the heavenly realm. Why is it that the demons are being cast down from heaven? Why is it that the heavens are being done away with and destroyed, so to speak? Because heaven itself has become polluted by sin. Now, 
sometimes we struggle with that because we're like, isn't heaven where God lives? Isn't that the place of God? Aren't we going to be with God in heaven? And the problem is, is that we have this modern, traditional concept of heaven being the holy place. But throughout scripture, heaven, the heavenlies, where the spiritual beings are. Think of it more, if you want to, in, in this day and age with modern sci-fi and stuff. Think of it as another dimension. It's just, it's just a different realm, the heavenly realm. And the demons are in the heavenly realm, just as angels are in the heavenly realm. And so the heavens, in that sense, are something that was created for the angels and something that has, has essentially been um, destroyed in a, in, a, in a sense of its holiness by the angels. That's something that was understood from the beginning. In Job chapter 15, verse 15, it says, Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. In other words, why would God trust ungodly men when God can't trust even angels? Amongst the angelic beings are those who have fallen, and as a result, the heavens are not pure in his sight. And unless you think, lest you think that is just some obscure Old Testament reference, we also saw it when we were going through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9 and uh, verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, that's the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly altar, to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. The writer of Hebrews talks about the need for the blood of Christ, the shed blood of Christ, to be poured out at the altar. Not the altar on earth, there's no temple, earth is about to be destroyed, but the altar in the heavenlies. That in the heavens, there is a tabernacle on which the earthly tabernacle was was a copy of. There is an altar of which the earthly altar was a copy of. And that's the altar that the blood of Christ has to be poured upon as the ultimate sacrifice because the heavenly realm has to be purified as much as the earthly realm. You see, we so often, as human beings, we're so self-obsessed with our little worlds, we don't think of the world as a whole, let alone other worlds, let alone another realm where God is declaring himself to be righteous to the heavenly realms by what he accomplishes on the earth. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 3. That the manifold wisdom of God is declared to the heavenly realms because of what he's doing here with us in the church. His wisdom, he says, look how clever I am. Look what I did with the church. Look how I shamed you. Look how I fooled you. Look how I got one over on you. You went and killed my son, not knowing that's exactly what I was going to use to bring about redemption of the people that you want to destroy. And I'm going to use them to build my church, to build my kingdom. So we've got to be able to have an eye always on the heavenly realm. So that brings us to the end of verse 4. And God... Uh, in summary, is gathering the nations together. That's something that we later on see in Revelation is going to be um, what we call the Battle of Armageddon. We read that in Revelation 16 and verse 15. Um, that there, at that time, he's going to gather the nations together. God's anger will be poured out upon them, and it will be poured out upon the, the hosts that have governed them. Uh, and it's possible, these things aren't 100% clear, it's possible at that point that the heavenly beings 
will now be in the earthly realm at the point of their destruction. And there will be signs in the sky to, um, to illustrate what's going on in the spiritual realm. That is what's going on in the first four verses. So now let's pick up in verse 5. Now, when we, before we come to verse 5, what have we seen in the first four verses? What we've seen is this call of the nations to gather, and it is universal. All the nations are gathering together to a single location. They're gathering to a single location. The location is the place that we call today Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo. That's where they're gathered. Okay? We've already seen in Isaiah, Isaiah 13 and 14, that at that point, the city of Babylon falls. The falling of Babylon, the final falling of Babylon, we've seen it in Isaiah 13, we see it in Isaiah 14 in great detail. We also saw it, I don't recall the chapters off the top of my head, sorry, we saw it in multiple other places in Isaiah already, when he keeps returning to this theme of destruction of Babylon. It is a central theme in Revelation 18, 19, the, the fall of Babylon. Babylon is going to fall, and it will be their final defeat. How does a mighty city like Babylon fall? Because they've all left to go and gather, gather at the Valley of Armageddon. They've all gathered in one place. There's no military might left And if you want to look at it geographically, and I'll try and do it from your perspective, over in the east is where Babylon is. Megiddo is over north of Jerusalem. So the armies have all left, come from all over the world, but Babylon as well, have come to Armageddon to gather together, and they're going to go from on the west, from Armageddon south, and destroy Jerusalem. And that will be, of the tribulation, the final fall of Jerusalem. But then the Jews who they want to destroy will then be able to destroy Babylon in their absence. But when you go down directly south from Armageddon to Jerusalem where they're destroyed, you then take a shift inland and further south, going southeast to modern-day Jordan, to the land of Edom. And what we're going to see here in verse 5 and following is a shift from the universality of the call, all the nations gathering together, to their destruction in a specific place. Now remember, as far as Isaiah is concerned, he's just telling us that they're all being gathered together, and he's telling us that they're being destroyed in Edom. So you could just read Isaiah and think, well, they're being gathered in Edom. But we discover elsewhere in Scripture that they're being gathered elsewhere, and then they're going to come to Edom. Why Edom? We'll talk about that in a minute. Let's, let's get back to the text. Verse 5. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens, and behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom. Here we have again this parallelism between the heavens and the earth, between the destruction of the demonic realm and the destruction of the human realm, the destruction of the enemies of God, whichever realm that they're in. And basically what he's saying is, I've, I've taken them out of the heavens, leaves falling, hosts falling, they've come down, And so now, my sword has had its fill. I've conquered them there. And now, there will be the destruction on the earth, but specifically in the nation of Edom. Now, Isaiah's already had a lot to say about Edom. Edom, we've dealt with the oracle of Edom uh, earlier on. And Edom is one of those few nations that because of their animosity towards the Jews throughout history, 
that while many nations will have a remnant, while many nations will have a surviving remnant who will come into the kingdom and who will worship God, there will be no remnant from Edom. Just like there'll be no remnant from Babylon. And that the nation of Edom will come under judgment. And so judgment will come to Edom upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Remember that phrase? We saw it just a few verses ago. That is the phrase um, haram. Haram, this is this curse where something is totally devoted to destruction. Now notice specifically what is devoted to destruction. The people. Verse 5, it's the people. The Lord, in verse 2, was enraged against the nations, furious against their hosts, and devoted them to destruction. In other words, what's happening here by the repetition of the haram curse is he's showing you that it's the same group of people. So what we've done, as I've said, is we have people from everywhere, all over the earth. All the terminology in verse 1 was speaking of universality. It was a universal call to gather to arms. And those people are devoted to destruction. But the destruction is going to come upon Eden, and those people that were devoted for destruction will be slaughtered in Eden. Again, we'll come back to why in a moment. Yahweh, verse 6, has a sword and it is sated with blood. We've already seen earlier on about how that blood is going to be flowing through the mountains. And it is Yahweh's own sword that will be sated with blood. It is him who will do the destruction. This is how it happens en masse because he's the one to do it. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, the fat of, kidney, of kidneys, um, the kidneys of rams. You say, hold on a second, is he slaughtering people or animals? Now what's happening here is that the people who are being slaughtered, clearly it's people who are being slaughtered. The people who are being slaughtered, who are haram, who are devoted to destruction, that those people are being pictured as sacrifices, as part of the sacrificial system. In other words, you did not come and worship, you rejected my sacrifice, and therefore I am going to treat you as a sacrifice. Guys, this is the gospel in very Old Testament and bloody language. But we see the fulfillment of the sacrificial system in Jesus Christ. And God requires his sacrifice. So we either place our trust in Christ, bow before him, acknowledge him as Yahweh, and accept his sacrifice for us as, as sufficient, or else we will be the sacrifice. Either he had the punishment upon him as the sacrifice, or we will have the punishment upon us as the sacrifice. There's your choices. Now, for sure, this hasn't been fleshed out in New Testament uh, you know, verbiage yet, but Isaiah is going to do that more and more. We know chapter 53 is coming, right? We know that the chapter explaining how iniquity will be dealt with is coming. And so it is that that is to come. But for now, we see the essence of the gospel. That the people of the world, the nations, must either make sacrifice to Yahweh, his chosen sacrifice, or they must become the sacrifice. And this imagery, I won't turn to these passages because I don't want to be here too long tonight, but this imagery, we also see it in Jeremiah 46 and verse 10. 
in Ezekiel 39, verses 17 to 20, and in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 7 to 8. I'll go on, I'll just do one. Let's do the Zephaniah one. I always feel like you never get enough minor prophets, really. And it's something that we should always correct. So I'm just flicking there now, very quickly, to... There is Zephaniah. So Zephaniah 1, 7 and 8, just to read it to you. Be silent before Yahweh God. For the day of Yahweh is near. The Lord Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guest. And on the day of Yahweh's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. In other words, there will be a destruction of the rulers of the nations, and that will happen on the day of the Lord, and they are viewed as being a sacrifice consecrated for the guests. So again, that same imagery at the same time for the same period of time in history. So all of that then leads us to the second half of verse 6. For Yahweh has a sacrifice. That's the imagery of the previous half of the verse. Yahweh has a sacrifice in Bosra. In Bosra. Now, some versions may say sheepfold. The word Bosra means a sheepfold. The word Bosra means a sheepfold. And I think many versions it's translated that way in Micah 2. We turned to Micah 2 a few weeks ago, and I'll, and I'll make the connection in a minute. But Bosra is a particular place in Edom. It's a city in Edom. So, the nations are gathered from all over the world. They gather together in one place. We now know, not from this passage, from elsewhere in Scripture, they meet somewhere different. They then go down and through and destroy Jerusalem, and Jerusalem falls, they're successful, and then they go to Bosra. To Bosra is not a huge city, it's a mountain city, it's a mountain town. And it's called Sheepfold because in the same way that sheep are kept boxed in by the fences around them, so Bosra is protected by the geography around it. This is the same place that Isaiah has been speaking of in the previous chapter. Let's go back there briefly and remind ourselves, because not all of you were there. At the end of chapter 33, there are those who, in verse 14, I'm, I'm going to read in verse, well, let's read from verse 13. Here you are far off what I have done, and you who are near acknowledge my might. The far off and the near are the Gentiles and the Jews. Paul uses the same terminology in Ephesians chapter 2. The sinners in Zion are afraid, trembling has ceased the godless. So those Jews who are not saved, they haven't trusted in Christ, they haven't recognised him as Messiah, those Jews who are not saved, nonetheless recognise that the judgement upon the earth is the wrath of God. They have enough spiritual heritage to know that their God is against them. And so they're afraid and they're trembling. Are they saved? No, they're sinners. Are they saved? No, they're godless. But they know enough of God to know who is doing it and that they should tremble. Who among us can dwell with a consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Step one of the gospel, condemnation. They know that they are sinners worthy of judgment. They know that they cannot dwell with a holy God. So what do they do about it? They say, he who walks uprightly and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hand lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears the hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he will dwell on the heights. 
In other words, God is going to protect the righteous. The righteous. Now, they don't understand that the only way that they can be made righteous, the only way their iniquity can be dealt with is by trusting in the one that they pierced, mourning for him as one mourns for a son. That they will mourn over their ancestors' murder of Jesus. They will recognize Jesus as Messiah and they will call for him to return. But this is the process of them coming to that. But the fact that they are now seeking after God means that God is going to protect them and they're going to dwell in the heights. They're going to dwell, look at verse 16, the place of defense will be the fortress of rocks and bread will be given and his water will be sure. In other words, there will be a place in the mountains where they will be protected. A place in the mountains where the geography itself will act as a fortress, where they will be hidden away and protected. Because the Jews are about to be wiped out, the whole earth is being destroyed, the Gentiles who are surviving are trying to wipe out the Jews with all the energy that they've got, and they, the majority of the remaining Jews, go to gather, they're seeking after God, and they go and they're gathered in a place in the wilderness where, like the wilderness of old, God provides food and God provides water, like he provided manna in the wilderness before. And God provides for them a place for them to be in. And uh, they're in that place. We spoke about this, I think, um, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago we spoke about this, maybe, maybe three. Um, we spoke about them hiding in that place, the place in the mountains. Where is a place in the mountains? A place where the defense is a fortress of rocks? That would be Bosra. Bosra is that place. So in chapter 33, the Jews who are seeking after God, not yet saved, but recognizing his holiness, recognizing his righteous wrath, seeking after him, he protects them in the place of the wilderness, in the place of Bosra. And we need, this one I will turn to because this is important. Again, we're back in the minor prophets. The minor prophets, just so you know, again and again and again, the minor prophets are there. And by the way, while we're talking about the judgment on, on Edom, Obadiah is an entire book, albeit one chapter, that is solely devoted to the judgment on Edom. That's the nature of them. So... Um, but the minor prophets, again and again, they're building on Isaiah. They're very dependent on Isaiah. And in Micah chapter 2, verse 12, Micah 2 verse 12 says this, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. Who's being assembled? Jacob, Israel. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold. The word in the Hebrew there is that we'll gather them together in a sheepfold, and the word is Bosra. And many versions do say Bosra, and um, many versions don't. And my preferred translation is Bosra, because it just harmonizes with the other references. So he's going to set them together, um, like sheep in a fitfold, like flock in its pasture, a multitude of, of noisy men. Um, and then what's going to happen when they're there, he who opens the breach goes up before them, they break through and pass the gate, going out by it, their king passes on before them, Yahweh at their head. Yahweh is going to turn up at Bosra. So let's, and again, I'm going slightly outside the scope of Isaiah, just so that you've got a bigger picture here, and then we'll come back and look at what Isaiah is specifically telling us. We have 
Over in the east, the Babylon, the armies coming from Babylon, from all over the world, gathering at Armageddon. Babylon is now vacated and it falls. They then descend with bloodlust in their eyes down to Jerusalem and destroy Jerusalem. That's step two of the camp. Uh, step one of the campaign of Armageddon is the gathering. Step two is the destruction of ba- Babylon. Step three is the fall of Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem, they go to wipe out the remaining Jews in Bosra. And that's where they go. And here in Isaiah, he has specifically been dealing with this period of time. In chapter 33, he told us that they were gathered in this fortress. In chapter 34, he names the place as being Bosra. And he talks there that that will be the place where all of the nations, all of the armies, all gathering together, they're going to be destroyed, their corpses will be en masse rotting away, the, the, the mountains will be flowing with blood, and it will happen at Bosra. It will happen at Bosra. And that's really why verse 7 completes the way it does. Wild oxen shall fall with them, young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its full of blood, a fill of blood. Their soil shall be gorged with fat. Again, I don't think this is literal animals being killed. It's part of the imagery of sacrifice that's being maintained here. But it is talking about the, the old and the young. Everybody who's there in battle is going to fall and the land will soak up this blood. They will soak up this blood and they will be gorged with fat. The fat, again, being a term that refers to um, the sacrificial nature of the judgment. So what we have is really that final judgment. Now, I'm not going to give you a spoiler here, really, because we wouldn't get here probably for at least another two years. So let me just jump ahead to chapter 63. Turn with me to Isaiah 63. The Jews gathering in Bosra, the Antichrist seeking to destroy them all. We see them going there for protection, Isaiah 33. We see that the armies that have gathered against them are destroyed there in Isaiah 34. By the time we come to chapter 63, we get a bigger picture of what's going on. Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Eden in crimson garments from Bosra? Okay, we have our sequence. Gathering of armies, destruction of Babylon, destruction of Jerusalem, into Bosra. Now we have something different. Whatever's happened in Bosra, we know what's happened. It's in chapter 34. It's the destruction of the armies of all the nations. And the heavenly host. Now what's happening is we have somebody leaving Edom and Bosra. Somebody's leaving there. And they're leaving in crimson garments. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. So the splendidness of apparel would tend to speak towards holiness. Marching in the greatness of his strength speaks of might. Who do we know who has holy apparel and marches in his own might and his own strength? The answer is at the end of verse 1. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. In the storyline of Isaiah, it is the one who was born of a virgin. It is the one who will be the prince of peace. It is the one who is Yahweh in the flesh. It is the one who will 
ultimately become a sacrifice so the iniquity of the people can be dealt with. It is that one who is righteous. It is that one alone who is mighty to save. And it is that one alone who is going to come away from Bosra, heading to the Mount of Olives. He's going to come away from Bosra, away from Edom. And those majestic garments, speaking of his holiness, are going to be stained crimson. The reason why is in verse 2. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? So you imagine that your job is to take a whole bunch of grapes in a little mini pit and just stomp on them. And you're going to stomp on them and stomp and stomp and stomp on these grapes to crush them all down. We're in the days before juices, mechanical juices, and feet had to suffice. And the, the grapes are going to run off, the grape juice is going to run off where it will be collected and stored, leaving just the mass there. Imagine you did that in a pair of white pants and a white T-shirt. He says that what's going on, or rather the question is being asked is, why do you look like this? Because you're splattered with crimson red, just like someone who's been doing that in the wine press. The answer is in verse 3. I've trodden the wine press alone. From the people's No one was with me. I trod them in my anger. See the parallel with 34? I trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. The destruction of the nations at Bosra in Isaiah 34, we're told in Isaiah 63, is done by a single person. That's why it's a flash flood of blood. Because there is one person who does it. The one who is mighty to save. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked but there was no one to help. I was appalled but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. He did it all in his own strength. The salvation, not his salvation in him being made holy, obviously, but him being saved in the sense of him being delivered. The deliverance of him from the armies. Here are all the armies against his people. He comes and he brings about his own salvation, fueled by his anger. Verse 6, I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And as we ended that section today in Isaiah 34, so it ends in Isaiah 63 with the earth soaking up the blood of those that have been destroyed. What happens in between Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 63 is that the Jewish people cry out for the Messiah to come. And he comes when they cry out when they mourn for him, Zechariah, as one mourns for an only child, the one that they pierced, the one that they rejected, they recognize him to be the Messiah, and they say, come, Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118. Jesus said to the Jews, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so they will cry out, and they will come. He will come. And he comes And the Jews who are on the brink of being exterminated forever, the final Holocaust, are saved by one man, 
the man Christ Jesus, who returns in his wrath and his anger to bring about the redemption of the Jews. And they are saved. The armies gather closer. We've already seen this in Isaiah. They're saved. And for three days after being saved, they cry out for Christ to return. For three days, the armies of the Antichrist are gathered around and the end looks nigh. And for three days, they put that newfound faith to the test and they trust in Yahweh. They didn't trust in Yahweh in Isaiah 28 through 35. They didn't trust in him. They trusted in Egypt. They trusted in Babylon. They trusted in, in all the other nations, Assyria. They trusted in might. They trusted in power. And finally, finally at the end, they trust in the one who is actually mighty to save. And all of these themes of Isaiah come to fruition in chapter 63, when the nation of Israel finally learns its lesson and says, we will trust in you. And he returns, and the Antichrist and his armies and the armies of the world are destroyed. Their bodies give off a stench as they sit and rot in the wilderness. Their blood flows for hundreds of miles as high as a horse. You want to picture this? Do you want to know what it looks like? Most um, commentators who take a more literal, plain interpretation of, of prophetic scripture think that the most likely location for the sheepfold, for the biblical city of Bosra, is the modern city of Petra. Petra is considered one of the great wonders of the world. It's where St. Catherine's Monastery is. If you don't know it, look it up. Look at the pictures. You've got all the rocks and mountains around and these little alleyways. If you haven't studied it, you may have watched Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where they're chasing around on their horses with all the rocks either side. That's what's going to fill up with blood. You can see how much would be needed to get it to that height. That's where the armies will come. They will come to the place where the Jews are gathered and their blood will fill the place up. That's the final place and that is the location of the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's when and where he returns. At the calling of his people at Bosra, Petra, in Edom. And the armies will be destroyed. Next time... We'll go back into chapter 34. I'm hoping that we'll finish off the chapter next time. For Yahweh has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. He is going to bring about judgment to recompense for what has been done to Israel. And we'll see a whole bunch more about this judgment that will happen in the rest of this chapter. And then we'll hopefully be ready for chapter 35 in the new year. Anyway, let's pray as we go. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, tonight as we go out, I pray that we would not be guilty of only focusing on one side of your character. We don't need to balance your grace and your love with your wrath, your anger and your judgment. There's no balancing needed because you are completely, fully love and you are completely and fully a righteous judge that your love is expressed in your judgment as much as your love is expressed in your salvation, in your redemption, in the removal of iniquity. Help us not to be ashamed or embarrassed of a God who judges. May we proclaim that judgment is coming. May we proclaim a holy God. May we proclaim the sinfulness of man. 
And may we proclaim that a day is coming when all will give an account. And they will either trust in God's chosen sacrifice, your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, or they themselves will be the necessary sacrifice for their sin. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. Pray that, that others like us would, would make that confession now, here, in this world, in this time. Pray for friends, for family, for loved ones, for children, for parents. Those upon our hearts right now, Lord. Save them, we pray. Save them from the judgment to come. And Father, I pray for our coming evangelistic services. I pray for the Christmas service on the 20th. Pray that unbelievers would come and the gospel would go out. I pray for in the new year when we have a baptism service. That the gospel would go out, that unbelievers would hear. And I pray for salvation. Pray that people will be saved. Pray that people will trust in you, trust in, in your son, trust in that sacrifice and escape the judgment to come. Lord, may we see passages like this. See the righteousness of your judgment. How you will redeem all things. And Lord, may we bow before your sovereign will and may we plead for those who have not yet bowed. May they bow alongside us. Lord, save them for your glory. Save them. Add them to your church that they might bring further glory to your holy name. Amen. 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 God bless you. 